Welcome back to the Better Way podcast brought to you by RNG Insights Lab. This is a curiosity podcast where we ask, there has to be a better way, right? There just has to be. I'm Zach Kosalia, the co-founder of RNG Insights Lab, and I am joined, as always, by the one and only Hui Chen. Hi, Hui. Hi, Zach. Hi, everyone. We have a special guest today, and that's Dr. Daniel Beunza. Professor Beunza is a professor of social studies of finance at City University of London Business School. And he is going to be talking with us about his field research and his award-winning book called Taking the Floor. So this is going to be a very, very interesting conversation. We're going to dive into that very shortly. But before we do that, Zach, you have your existential question, as always. I do have an existential question. Daniel, we like to start by getting to know you a little bit better professionally, and we like to end by getting to know you a little bit better personally. So my introductory question to you is, who is Daniel? Who are you? Thank you for that. I guess my job has turned me into something of a professional outsider. I'm an academic. I am a Spanish-born, US-trained, business school academic in London. But for my research, which is what I spent most of my time doing, I hang out in places where I traditionally don't belong. And these are trading floors, financial data organizations, exchanges, alternative investment companies. And so I guess I am just used to hanging out with strangers. I want to start by talking about your research and talking about your book. And obviously we're going to delve probably pretty deep into both. Um, the full title of your book for folks that are looking forward is Taking the Floor, Models, Morals, and Management in a Wall Street Trading Room. And you know, you you start the book by really identifying the fact that this is a two-decade labor from sort of beginning your research to ultimately publication. Tell us about what inspired you to look at, as we just said, models, morals, and management in a Wall Street trading room? My motivation for um, starting this project, and this is back in 1998, so a long time ago, I was a graduate student in New York City. I was doing my doctoral studies in New York University, and I uh, was living in a very inexpensive um, graduate student residence um, in the Upper West Side. Every day, I would come down to my business school, taking the number one train. Back then, the Twin Towers were still in place. And halfway down my commute, I would then glance to my right and see them. And um, at night, see them again. And, and that prompted thinking on my end, wondering what was inside. Um, and that then led me to wonder about uh, the financial industry and its place in New York City at, at large. And I decided that uh, this was a world that I wanted to understand from inside. So sort of like go inside those towers, go through the facade, if you will, and then understand the life of those traders that were inside the towers. And so that's what set off the project in the first place. So the project involved what you refer to as ethnographic study. As a reader, I see that that involved you 
basically embedding yourself uh, on the trading floor, having lots and lots of conversations with various people in the organization. So tell us what is an ethnographic study and, and you know, what did it look like when, from your perspective when you were doing it? Ethnography is a very specific technique that was initially developed by anthropologists in the UK um, to um, deal with the distance, the cultural gap that existed between um, their culture, their location. The realization that anthropologists arrived at is that uh, you cannot understand people at a distance without being there with them. Um, and so the ethnographic technique relies on fieldwork, it relies on um, living among the natives, uh, but it also relies on a very specific mindset, which is paying attention to those things that surprise you, that contradict one's own preconceptions. So while most of my colleagues uh, in the world of business, uh, business schools are busy trying to confirm the hypothesis that they think up uh, and then test via quantitative analysis, whether it's regression or experiments, ethnographers go out there in the world to challenge themselves and their preconceptions. I love that. You say that your work doesn't start with a hypothesis. You're starting, one of the words we love most here is with curiosity. So did you know where, what direction this was going to go? Did you have a sort of intention as you began this research? Or did it really sort of take shape based on that curiosity that was ignited in you on the train on your way to school? I would love to say that, oh, I had some hypothesis and I had read some literature. But the reality of it is that I was just honestly curious to know what the hell was going on out there. I was almost like a tourist. Now, as I made that decision to then study the financial sector, um, then I realized that there was some work in the social sciences outside finance and outside economics and outside even behavioral finance that spoke about the role of social relations on, say, a stock exchange. And so what that work did is it went into uh, things like, for instance, the way in which um, the size of a trading crowd in, say, one of the um, exchanges that used to um, trade on a floor in Chicago, the relationship between the amount of people on the floor, the, the way in which they shout, the volume of the shouting, and the structure of the social network that gets created. So I began my own research, very keen to understand communication via shouting on um, on a trading room. On my first day, my very first visit to the bank, I show up with a detailed questionnaire trying to uh, get at various aspects and is issues, um, many of them related to shouting. And to my shock and, and disappointment, um, the trading room was just extremely quiet. So for a while, I had a conversation with the manager whom I was interviewing on that day, but eventually I just had to confess that, look, um, I was really interested in shouting and why was everyone so quiet and not acting like on television? 
And so the gentleman laughed and explained that things had changed with the introduction of technology. Um, at the time, it was not really the internet, it was Bloomberg terminals, um, which then made the communication of information something that travels on screen as opposed to via the mouth. And so that trading floors had radically changed because of technology. I understood the explanation, but I was nevertheless very disappointed and I resolved to, you know, finish the interview and then go find another trading floor that might actually provide me with the level of shouting uh, that I was hoping for. But eventually I realized that, that actually, no, I really had to go with that surprise, that unexpected um, finding, and then really investigate the ways in which technology was reshaping um, finance, the way that uh, traders did their job, plus the way in which social relations were mediated. So many of our listeners are lawyers, compliance professionals, ethics professionals. We look at the title of your book. You talk about Wall Street and you have the word morals all in the same thought. Um, tell us at a high level about sort of the connection between morals and Wall Street, where I think for a lot of people that may seem like disconnected concepts. I would completely expect that, but but this is the story of how I got into this. I finished uh, my first ethnography of a Wall Street trading floor. This was a three-year intensive project. Um, I began to publish uh, a few papers, won a couple of awards, and then I got hired by Columbia University to teach at its business school. I had been there for a couple of years when suddenly the um, September 08 and the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers came along. And the press was full of these extremely damning headlines, these um, unethical traders and bankers. And um, my, my colleagues were just very keen on, on understanding my perspective on this because they knew I had been doing field work there. And, and so Daniel, what do you think about this whole mess going on on Wall Street? And the thing that, that shocked me the most is that I couldn't say anything to that because the world that I had seen was not a world of excesses and opportunism and, and problem. It was a world of people who were, yes, ambitious, but at the same time um, worried about you know, doing the right thing. And so I realized that I had seen a very unique sort of like ethical landscape within Wall Street. And eventually I understood that in fact, this was not by coincidence, that the manager of the trading floor that I have been following for three years had unbeknownst to me been engaged in a major reform process to address the ethical standards in the trading floor that he was managing. And that in fact, um, unbeknownst to me again, I was part of that whole adventure. Um, because it suited him to have someone there documenting what was going on. And so I realized that I had to go back to my field work, not with an eye to understand the models and the traders and the trainings and the, and the detail of the uh, derivatives pricing, but rather to understand the moral foundations of that organization and to better get a sense of what can a manager do to affect 
things on my trading floor. You mentioned in your book that compliance interventions had often happened at the symbolic level, speeches, workshops, breakout groups. And you say, quote, such initiatives run the risk of proving too general to have concrete bearing on trading practices. In addition, attempts to instill different values in bank employees overlook the fact that values are not easily internalized and that values are not a particularly powerful determinant of action. Furthermore, because norms and values are not often shared among most members of a collective, organization-wide initiatives led by compliance or other departments may prove too generic to affect change." End of quote. Now, tell us a little more about what that means. I think that targeting values is an attempt by um, divisional functions um, to influence employees. Uh, but um, what they really are trying to do is make up for the fact that direction of influence is not running alongside the main axis that exists in organizations. Organizations are a hugely powerful beast. Um, and the way that they function is the hierarchy. And so what your boss does or says is of course of huge significance. What other people do or say is of some significance, but it's got nothing to do with what your boss does or says. So I think that one of the uh, complexities in the uh, current bank culture agenda is that in many ways it is addressed at corporate functions, whether it's HR, compliance, risk management, while uh, the most powerful form of influence in an organization is the manager-subordinate relationship. So what I saw um, in my book is the hectic attempts of a manager at um, getting back the authority and the ability to shape his employees, oftentimes by warding off uh, the attempts um, by other divisions, such as in the case that I studied, risk management. So the idea that you can influence values, I think that that is perhaps um, problematic. I'd love it if you could put a little bit of a finer point on this, because I think that the culture discussion often does today turn to organizational values. What are the things that we value, whether it's trustworthiness, respect, excellence, personal accountability, et cetera. Um, are you saying that your research suggests and the research of others is, is suggesting that we shouldn't be focusing on those values or that we shouldn't be focusing on those values to the exclusion of behaviors? Perhaps are you maybe saying that there is no such thing as an organizational value, that there are so many different cultures um, within an organization like a modern day global corporation that it perhaps is meaningless to think about what is the organizational culture of a 100,000 person organization or spread across the world. So I, I actually think that the two of you have made extremely valid points. I think that people respond to their own values 
Um, I think that addressing uh, culture um, also needs to look into norms. So, you know, values is this sort of like general internalized direction uh, for behavior. Norms, especially informal norms, are really the set of things that um, constrain behavior. So in uh, making sure that organizations um, do not blow up, as they did in the financial crisis, or uh, do not generate the type of uh, opportunistic behavior that uh, became apparent with the LIBOR scandal, um, norms are an extremely important component. And these are different from values. These are things that people won't do um, because of because of ostracism um, or because they just think it's wrong. But different people can have different values and yet adhere to the same informal norms. One of the themes that we've had on this podcast is this idea that there's a desire, there's sort of an instinct at times to try to reduce to a thing, to try to take the reductionist view because there's comfort in that. And I think that what we increasingly are finding from talking to you and talking to others is that culture isn't one thing. It's not just values. It's not just norms. It's not just behaviors. It's not just about the ways that we interact with each other. It's not just about the organization. It's not just about the people. It's about all of these things and so much more. It's an incredibly complex concept. I mean, would you agree with that, first of all? And if so, what are we to do and what are our listeners to do as as agents for shaping culture when it is as complex as it seems, at least to me. I think that you you put the, the finger on the paradox of taking an enlightened and ex, an expansive understanding of culture, which is which very much echoes uh, the understanding that um, cultural anthropologists had during the seventies and, and before that. More recently, anthropologists have narrowed their, their perspective. Um, and taking the view that culture is really about the way in which natives make meaning of, of things, of artifacts, of expressions. And in the, in, the, in the context of finance, I must confess that I am somewhat worried that the more complex a view of culture is, the more difficult it is to really put one's own finger on, on what is it, and then intervene. Um, so for instance, are organizational structures part of culture? Are organizational incentives part of culture? Well, there's no question that they, they influence culture and they certainly influence behavior. Um, but I think that if one takes an excessively all-encompassing understanding, then, then the danger is that there are not going to be any distinct tools to intervene in culture. And instead, we are just relabeling things that we already know about, like structures, like incentives, etc. If everything is culture, nothing is culture? That's right. <laughs> Tell us a story or two from the book about how you saw some of the complexities or maybe the simplicities of culture actually come to life through your field work. Well, one of the situations that stayed with me the most, and, and this is not something that um, you know is in any way a, a recommendation for action, 
but there was an instance where uh, the manager of the trading floor was challenged by one of the traders, by the, the, the top producer um, of the trading floor in that year. The context of that challenge was that uh, the manager had uh, put in place a compensation system uh, which was similar to what hedge funds normally use, which is traders are paid a fixed percentage of the profits generated by their desk. Um, that percentage is agreed upon at the beginning of the year and is not subsequently revisited. However, um, in this specific instance, the um, trader who was the leading producer did really well. And so he felt that he not only was entailed to the percentage that had been agreed, but actually of a greater share. And so he came up to the manager and expressed that view and then threatened to just leave the floor, leave the bank if his views were not agreed to. And um, that gave the manager um, a real dilemma because what do you do? If you um, say yes to him, uh, then very quickly, um, your system is going to be called into question by everyone else on the floor who will find other reasons for why they should be the exception too, to the rule. If on the other hand, uh, you, you, you don't agree, you run the risk of really just losing the employee and can you really afford losing your top producer? So the decision by the manager shocked me because it was completely outside the realm of my thinking. You know, somebody who teaches MBA um, students in a business school, I'm always uh, thinking about, well, you know, what is the more efficient way of proceeding? Uh, what, what maximizes, um, you know, shareholder value? What the manager of the trading floor did when faced with the dilemma was just simply fire the trader. Neither say yes nor no, but just simply fire the guy on the spot. Now, why is that? The reason is that, um, he manifestly had decided to challenge a system of norms that, that the manager had introduced and had everyone agreed to. This followed a number of incidents, and this also followed a number of other colleagues who had expressed concerns about the behaviors of this trader. So this was not some sort of like rash decision made by some sort of like, you know, tech captain. But it was a radical decision. And it really, I guess, taught me that sometimes um, managing culture really entails leaving money on the table. I, I remember the story very well. I feel like I've come to know, know this, this person that you call Bob in the, in the book. Is this somewhat of an unusual character as far as Wall Street goes? And it goes to a greater question about ethnography that... Um, it's a lot of storytelling that you're doing. When we first met, you talked about ethnography as the you know collecting stories like you collect data. You probably said something more eloquent than that, but I think about your explanation of ethnography. I think about well, stories are very illustrative, but to what extent are they unusual? How do we know this behavior is common or unique? Tell us a little bit about sort of your perception about how unusual was Bob's behavior in, in these respects on Wall Street. And two, how does ethnography as a methodology address the issue about whether 
something you're observing is an anomaly or a norm or something else? Yeah. How do you tell? I'm going to start with uh, Bob because it's not just Bob, it's Bob and I, right? And so here's Bob, grown up adult at the peak of his profession, being able to wield this level of authority. And then there's me, a, a young assistant professor trying to survive the classroom at one of the world's leading business schools, Columbia Business School, with extremely um, smart, ambitious, and yes, aggressive MBA students. And so in my world, I am chickening out. The students are coming in late. I know it, they know it. I'm not saying a thing. And so it's a mess. In Bob's world, he ends up in a position where he has the possibility, the, also the ability uh, to enforce norms and it works. And I think that why the book is successful is that we all have, all of us, an element of me, meaning the guy who's weak and who is unable to do any better, and Bob, the guy who is experienced, has already undergone the problems that one faces when being a junior person, and now he's able to really do it. And sort of like, he's at the top of his game. One of the things that makes the book uh, compelling that I was honest uh, in retelling my own limitations and, and, and Bob was honest as well. Uh, but the other question that you pose is extremely important is, but well, how scientific is this? Is this just not a bunch of stories? And um, so, first of all, I have to acknowledge that uh, what in social scientific terms is called um, the um, generalizability of ethnography has traditionally been well, one of the uh, weak points uh, that people uh, point to. But, um, but what I do is not just generalize from uh, one case. What I typically do is I look for uh, statements that are couched as universal laws and find an exception. So that's what I'm doing. I'm taking the proposition, it's impossible to manage the culture of a trading floor because finance is just like that. And what I'm showing is that actually no, it is possible to do it. And here's an example. And I'm gonna give you all the details you need to really be able to see that this, that this person is alive and that this is how you would do it. So, so that's what the book is trying to do. It's trying to counter a proposition. What was the overall proposition that I was coming with in, into this situation? That's the thing that um, is being challenged by what I see. So Daniel, I, I also want to quote um, Bob here about his view on risk management. Uh, apparently Bob believed that, quote, having a department dedicated to risk management entailed an unworkable division of labor. One guy gets the reward and the other gets responsibility. Uh, the, the salespeople get the reward, the risk managers get the responsibility. I, as someone who's worked in compliance, I imagine that's how a lot of us feel that this, you know, we're, we're the one who gets all the, the grunt of the responsibility and the sales and get, get all the reward. 
what can people who work in compliance functions um, take away from your book? First, I think is people should be able to take a more compassionate view of themselves when they are in compliance or risk management because it's such a difficult job. The organization has decided to divide up labor and then uh, locate uh, all that task of compliance within a single group. And that creates huge tensions. So the first one is it's, it's really very difficult. The second one is that there's a great risk that I think that um, control functions, compliance, risk management might conceivably overlook, which is um, the risk of employees feeling that they have been unfairly treated. And the danger with having people feeling unfairly treated um, in the organization is that it can then lead in, in, in the extreme to what um, social psychologists have uh, identified as um, moral disengagement. What, what I mean is situations where when one uh, stops adhering to one's own norms, um, one no longer feels bad about it. Um, the self-sanctioning mechanism uh, stops applying because of the perception of injustice. So when that happens, then essentially you have a free player uh, inside the organization handling somebody else's money. So a, a dangerous situations. And that generally speaks to another puzzle that I experienced in my research, which is, you know, in the wake of the global financial crisis, I could still never find a single instance of like a bad individual. It's not that people, you know, brought down their banks because um, they wanted to. They were just trying to do better for themselves with, without any regard for the consequences. So I think that that a blunt application of control tools runs, creates a danger of moral disengagement. And that's something that perhaps should be uh, more uh, taken into account. So Daniel, if I, if I might even add to a better way that I felt like I got out of your book was this ethnographic approach as a methodology. And to me, it's, it's a more advanced way of listening and, uh, and add observation to listening. Because I, I like what you said in, when you explained it about the ability to understand people in their native environment. Because I do feel like that's not something that many certainly transnational corporations do very well in terms of their, uh, their compliance efforts. I, in, in the, in the cross-cultural work that we do, what we, we see all the time, in fact, is the headquarter, which is usually based in the U.S. or Europe, telling people elsewhere in other markets that we want you to behave in the way that we want you to for the reasons that we think is important to us, and we don't really care what you're your nature, environment, your actual day-to-day -day life and culture are. In terms of, you know, what I got out of it was really the, the importance of trying to understand the native environments where people 
are trying to do their jobs and trying to apply their values and how they perceive your value from those vantage points. I am extremely pleased. I, I am thrilled that, that that's what you got out. And in fact, what you got out is uh, what primarily the world has uh, found interesting in my current work as an ethnographer. All right. This has been so much fun. Uh, now it is time for you to take the Better Way questionnaire, which is inspired by Proust and inside the actor studio and Bernard Pivot and a bunch of other folks. Uh, and so our first question, you actually have your choice. You can pick between one of the following two. Um, the first question is, if you could wake up tomorrow, having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Or you can answer, is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? I wish sometimes I could be a rock. I love to be that sort of like sturdy artifact that is unruffled by the emotions of others. The uh, second question is also a choice of one of two. You can answer who is your favorite mentor, or you can tell us who do you wish you could be mentored by? So I was privileged to be the graduate um, collaborator of Professor David Stark uh, at uh, Columbia University's sociology department. Um, think that um, just being around him sparked in me uh, a level of curiosity about the world that is very rare and exceptional that I had barely seen before. So I think that if there is one person that influenced me positively on a professional and personal level, that would be him, David Stark. Terrific. What is the best job, paid or unpaid, that you've ever had? For the past years, I have been paid um, to train bankers in bank executives in ethnographic research methods. And if you know, you ask an ethnographer of finance, what would be that dream job? Um, I guess that I was just really lucky to have it. Awesome. What is your favorite thing to do? So if there is one thing that I kind of like particularly love to do is to be the um, be the flaneur, to be the urban person that wanders around. I, I love to hang out the um, artistic um, areas of the cities, whether it's the uh, East London or Williamsburg um, in New York, spend the weekend, uh, bring the family sometimes and just kind of like get lost in, in whatever contemporary trend is taking place. Wow, I love that. Very similar to our next question, which is, what is your favorite place? So I am from Spain, um, and I am from the east, from the region called Valencia, to a specific village called Javier, where I have been spending my summers now for the past 20 years. That's where I met my, my wife, the beach, um, the culture, the food. Uh, I realize that that is a place that I particularly love. All right. So next question is, what makes you proud? One thing that makes me really proud is when I hear back from my students and see that, you know, 
and they graduated, they got good jobs, they they maybe get promoted, they find their way, they turn into these incredibly competent looking people that you know years before they were just in the making. So to have a role in that process of sort of like you know somebody becoming um, a fully grown up professional, I think that is really beautiful. It is indeed. What email sign-off do you use most frequently? I write regards, Daniel. Okay. Well, we're collecting pretty good data on how people uh, sign off their emails here. So we'll, we'll let you know how you compare. Next question is, what trend in your field is most overrated? You know, I think academics work from home too much. I don't know if it's a trend or it's always been the case. But um, we as academics collectively suffer from a lack of social connection to other academics um, who also suffer from lack of social connectedness. I hope that this at some point will reverse. And the last question is, what word would you use to describe your day so far? I have to use two words. Today has been fun but a little bit exhausting. I am organizing a workshop um, on, you know, guess what, bank culture. And so lots of fun, but uh, very tiring. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's been really fun getting to know you and learning more about your research uh, and digging into your book. Um, I think it would be really wonderful to have you back at some point. Thanks again. And thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash RG Insights Lab. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about anything that we've talked about today, the work that the lab does, or if you just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.